Hey, it's Jody. Welcome to We Do This For Fun. So excited to bring you what I can't believe is the fourth season of this podcast. We're bringing back some old friends and favorites, interviewing a ton of new really cool guests, and exploring some changes with the podcast. So with that, welcome to season four, and let's go have some fun. Coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. A conversation about the great and sometimes not so great outdoors. I'm your host, Lynn Melling. And I'm Jody Gruen, and we do this for fun. Hey, it's Lynn. And it's Jody. And uh, as you can hear, we're on Zoom, um, unfortunately, even though we have opportunities to gather in person, sometimes schedules do not permit. So we today are with our amazing guest, Scott Rokas, who is a multi-sport athlete, former nine-to-fiver, and photographer dedicated to his craft, capturing moments that move us. You got to look at these photos. They're gorgeous. Um, He works with lots of big outdoor brands and captures athletes and adventurers in their element. The making of Scott Rokas is an inspirational story, y'all, of a guy laying out his dream, plotting methodically, and making a couple mistakes along the way, Scott? A couple, maybe? Oh, and life's no fun without some mistakes. Right, exactly. (laughs) So I'm a huge sucker for adventure photography, and if you aren't already, you've got to check out Scott's work because you will be too. So Scott, welcome to We Do This For Fun. Well, thank you. I really appreciate uh, being on here. It's uh... You know, I just recently moved to Minnesota in this last year. And so uh, there's a very logical reason for moving here. And so it's very nice to have a warm welcome and uh, meet a few more people from the area. Well, welcome. Yeah, a warm Minnesota welcome to you. Um, Have you experienced a winter yet? (laughs) Yeah, I I lived here in 2003 to 2004. And so that was my first winter. And that's when I bought my first camera. So I, I and I was here for actually pretty much all of last winter, which I hear was a tough one, but I was like, oh, this is just what winter is. So, oh, yes, you're broken and nice. Okay. So tell us where are you from originally and why did you end up here in Minnesota? Yeah. So I grew up in the Quad Cities, Illinois. Um, So maybe five and a half, six hours from here, Um, kind of just outside there in a small farm town and went to University of Illinois and started with General Electric right after that in an IT program and then financial auditing and then eventually ran a business intelligence program for 10 years. And the number one question I got when I moved here this winter was, you know, you've been, I've been all around the world. I've been to almost all 50 states. I have two left. And the number one question was like, why Minneapolis? Why Minnesota? And I was kind of taken back by it because I was like, I always thought this place was amazing. And um, I think it goes back to my childhood when we did a camping vacation up at Leech Lake. And I was like 14, 15. And then my first job here after college, I lived in uh, St. Louis Park for a year. And that's when I got into endurance sports. And there was just this passion and love for the outdoors in Minnesota that doesn't exist in the same way in Illinois. And our winters aren't quite the same in Illinois anymore. So like cross-country skiing isn't something I grew up with. And I just, I saw the ability to do year-round sports. Uh, it's a very livable city. 
there's a lot of variety up here. We can go up to the North Shore or you can go to the flat cornfields out west or you can go a little bit east and get to a little bit more glacial terrain and the river terrain type stuff. So it's just, it feels home. And I think the, the, the other piece is there's a different mentality in Minnesota in the Midwest versus living out west for 15 years. It's a very transient culture out west. And I think what I, the phrase that I kind of thought about when I moved here was there's a humble hustle in Minnesota. Like it's a very humble community, but man, you guys get after it. And I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, yeah, I feel like almost everyone that we have interviewed on this podcast would definitely be like a humble hustler for sure. Yeah. And Lynn, yeah. do you love that he brought it back to camping near and dear yes. to her heart? We used to hate camping. Okay. I used to hate live. So I grew up in Minnesota and I thought it was lame sauce. I was going to get out of here, never come back. Right. And then like a moth to a cold flame, 15 years later, end up like the mothership called me home back to Minnesota. And I hated camping as a kid. And then when I got back here, um, my husband, one of the twins who's from Alaska showed me, you know, the whole gear thing. And I decided I loved camping. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's so it's and it well it's just it's really lovely to hear someone who comes not from Minnesota who you know I'm always surprised I guess because I grew up thinking you know we were always kind of the butt of the joke here in Minnesota yes. like flyover country and we talk with weird accents and we dance to polka music and the only cool thing that happened in Minnesota was Prince lived here yeah so it's just really. I just am always kind of pleasantly surprised when I hear someone say I decided to move here. Um, so, well, and I, I think too, uh, so I, I have this adventure background and, 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 um, the other piece of it is like, I've been in music since I was 10 years old. So mm. the first thing that I love moving here is like the, the art scene is fantastic. The performance scene is awesome. And so I've already been to a few shows, uh, since I've been here and whether it's <laughs> one of the more entertaining shows was uh, the St. Paul ballet they did a performance that was from cover to cover of Pink Floyd's The Wall. And oh, so wow. Huh. It's, the, it's the most amount of Miller and Bush lights I've ever seen in a ballet <laughs> hall. <laughs> and I was like, this is home. This, this yeah. I can get on board with this. Like, I, I love it. And so you have <laughs> such easy access to play outdoors. I mean, sure, you have, it's cold, but like... It's also hot in the desert. It's 115 in, in Arizona. And it's in, in Nevada, it's 100 degrees. And so uh, I just saw here was a very livable city. It filled my need for arts. Uh, it filled, filled my need with having some grit if I want to go play outdoors. Um, and then the, the people know how to create a home. And I think that's what I was missing out west. Hmm. I love that. So can we yeah. wind back a little bit? And because I really enjoyed learning about another fellow corporate soldier um, who was working a job, working really hard, had every intention of continuing on with a career. And one day just going like, I, I don't know. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that moment for you and then how you <coughs> pursued this, this dream? For sure. I, um, I think that moment starts somewhat unknowingly when I'm like 17, 18 years old. And um, I set out a vision for my 20s. I wanted to work as hard as I could for a big company. And I, my dad, most of my family's, um, you know, laborers or blue collar workers, right? And so 
I didn't have this corporate um, role model to really learn after, but I just knew the the goal was like college and then, and then a good job after that. So um, I knew in my twenties, I wanted a job that would send me everywhere and just teach me how businesses run. I could just learn how businesses operate. Cause at some point I want to run my own business. I have no idea what that's going to be in. And when I hit 30, it started to become like, okay, well, I don't have a wife or kids yet. I'm not in love with working in the oil and gas industry, uh, that division of GE, but it was still pretty cool. Like I was, I was learning. I had been all over um, the world. I'd been in different industries from like NBC um, to turbines, to aircraft engines, to commercial real estate. Like I got to learn how all those business models worked. So I was like, what could I go into business doing? And so at 30, I started generating all these ideas. Like I could take a year off and there's this highway out West highway 395. And I could spend 395 days on 395 adventuring. And like, I don't know where that would go. I would live off my bike and ski and climb. And I don't know how the logistics would work. But I was like, what, you know, that could maybe propel me into something. And then when I got 35, when I hit 35, it's kind of like, well, you're not married you don't have any kids. It, you're kind of losing your window to take a giant risk. Um, and I think if I had a family at that point, I wouldn't have taken the risk because it was not easy. Like the last seven years have not been easy. The last two have gone much better. Uh, but man, those first three or four years trying to, I didn't know anything in photography. I didn't know licensing. I didn't know. I had no distribution, no network contacts. Like I just knew I, I loved taking photos and I started to sacrifice my outdoor world to take the photos. And so, um, I had, I met a girl and I was like, okay, well, we both have the same thing. We both want to travel before we settle down. And so let's go take two years off and travel. And the idea was wonderful. And then three weeks into the travel, we broke up and went our separate ways. Oh, no. And so, no. I mean, it's, it was a great, it was a, it, it was wonderful for both of us, but that was the actual catalyst that helped me get over the hump of, uh, can I actually leave this job that has given me a paycheck every two weeks for the last 13 years? And the answer was, you know, with a little bit of help, I had that catalyst to, to push me over the hump. And then it was like, all right, you're doing this. Give yourself two years, like commit to two years to doing it. If it doesn't work, you have a giant career that you can fall back into and find work. And I think that was the thing for me is that going back to 17, I wanted to be a professional drummer. I wanted to be a performer, but I very specifically didn't want to live in a cardboard box. <laughs> and that was the idea at the time. It's like, if you want to be a musician, then you're just going to struggle forever. Right. I didn't yeah. know the upside to it. And so I had that idea to go do something creative, but I did the block and tackling of like setting up a, uh, some sort of stable financial base before I went off to really pursue something um, on my own. But the the trigger, the, the idea had been set when I was a teen. The trigger was working for a giant company where I had just this little tiny focus of thing and loss of respect for the leadership. And so it was... Um, I knew when I looked around the company of 300,000 jobs and I didn't want any one of them that it was time to go 
So, and off you went. So, (laughs) and so speaking of, you could live in a cardboard box. Well, you didn't want to do that, but you decided to. So let's talk van life. Yeah. So then I decided to live in a metal box. Exactly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So is that, was that the next jump then to. That, that was, that was. Yeah. So, um, I have come to appreciate experiences in life. That's for sure. And so, um, I started that next chapter and then, but I used the business mindset from before. So I knew, uh, I had no revenues and I knew I had no distribution to get revenues. So I knew I had to live on about two years worth of cash to be able to get by. And how do you do that? Well, you cut your costs. So I bought a $13,000 van, did the conversion with my dad and my cousin. And then January 7th or 8th, 2016 is when I left my job and moved into that van full time. And for the first two winters, it didn't have a heater in it. Oh no. (laughs) It just had like one of those little Mr. Buddy propane deals. Um, And you know, that runs out of its one pound canister and I think five or six hours. So it was just used to take the chill off in the morning, but those first two winters, um, and they were out West, so it wasn't terrible, but I mean, it's, you'd wake up in snow, like it's, you're still sleeping. And then in the morning, when the sun starts to hit the outside of the van, water would drip on my face because overnight my breath would freeze to the ceiling. And then when it would warm up in the sun, I would get woken up by uh, that cold drip on the face. But the, the idea from the van was, keep costs low and maximize my time at a location with a client because it was more important to build relationships than, than gain income. And I just thought the more time I invest in the people uh, that I want to work with. And that's, that was kind of the liberating thing when you start to run your own business is if you don't want to work with somebody, you don't have to work with them, right? If you don't respect the way they're running their business. And if you don't, want to be associated with how they're running their business, then you just find that revenue elsewhere. You find that other person to partner with. And so you kind of steer, I have steered my client list through um, who I want to work with. And that's hard at times because you've got to give up income, but it's also great because I work with the people I really want to work with. And that that's been forming stronger bonds for me. Hmm. Um, But yeah, Van, Van, van life right on the front edge. And I think the thing for me is I, I never <clears throat> really developed that side of my work. Like I didn't want to be a van life photographer. I wanted my work kind of rooted in something else versus, versus a social media profile. So I don't have a big social media following, but that was very conscious because I wanted, I didn't want to be tied to my content on an app. I wanted to be tied to people mm-hmm. um, and build relationships through the things that they're doing. Yeah. Oh, so you're like the OG van lifer as, as Jody. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, uh, I think there's a lot of people in the seventies that can take that. Credit. <laughs> but it just got cool again, like in the last exactly. few years. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you're like grandpa yeah. van lifer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, so you pick up photography 
And, you know, and then you say, you know, you, you make these connections with human beings instead of an app. Like I, I, that's just a really interesting way to think about it. I'm also wondering about um, fitness and art, like that collision that happens because a lot of people don't put those two things together. And when I look at your photos, I see art and I see fitness, but I don't necessarily go, that's art, that's fit. Like it really does meld. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you make art out of an endurance sport? That's thanks for saying that because there's a lot of thought that goes into, uh, I think what people can forget is the photos are a representation of the person behind the camera. Um, and I think having shot alongside several photographers over the last seven years, there's that's my style has been more clear to me. And I think what was hard in 2016 was I got, permanently professionally behind the camera i didn't know my style i just knew what i liked but i didn't know that was my style or that's what i kind of start to be known for so um having it kind of noticed as art is is a great compliment and i think the thing specifically for me um and i will say that i shoot alongside howie stern who's a very well-known uh running uh, ultra endurance photographer and what's been really cool for five or six years to shoot alongside him is, is to see on a very clear scale how our work is different. And there's such a respect and appreciation for shooting the same exact event and people and seeing how we see it through different <clears throat> perspectives. Mm-hmm. And when I picked up a camera, I was, um, I, I didn't have the confidence to interact with somebody. So if I kept them a far ways away from me, then um, then I didn't have to interact with them because I didn't know what to tell them to do. Look left, look right, raise your chin, smile here, don't smile here, move your eyes. Like I just, I wasn't confident in directing a person. So the further I could keep an athlete away from me, the better. And so what I ended up doing was learning how to really frame a small athlete existing in a big landscape, which was partially the whole reason I wanted to give myself a chance to live out West in the mountains was just to experience the mountains. When you grow up amongst corn and soybean, you're just curious what that other side is like. And so when I thought of my pursuits, it was just kind of like, I wish my family could see this giant landscape that I get to play in. Um, Backcountry skiing, rock climbing, ice climbing. I just, I wanted them to see the full expanse and the way to do that was to capture photos that I could send back home and say, like, this is what I'm doing now. Nobody in my family has done these things. This is what it's like. And this is why I love living out here because it comes at such a cost to family time. But it's it's meant a lot to me personally. So my photographs, I've really honed in on how to isolate an athlete amongst a giant landscape. Because if you can isolate them, then it's an easier photo to digest on the viewer. Cause I'm always thinking the viewer sight lines and where their eyes are going first in the photo. And if, if they can see that that's a person interacting, there's more chance that they can connect and put themselves into that moment. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of, a lot of um, prep work before events. And then a lot of thought going into, can I get a very clear isolation of a subject? And um, I compare it to golf a little bit. I, you know, I, 
or bingo any sport but in golf you're just kind of like i think i can hit it over this tree and then it's going to go right a little bit and then it's going to perfectly land on the green like you're going for that hero shot all the time and um like you and that's what i go through in the photos like if i can get them to just run and be in the middle of their stride during this little sliver of light right when the wind's blowing then everything's going to come together mm. and you just work it until that happens mm. because that extra effort in lining those things up just right and looking at all of the elements out there to play with um uh you know you only need to capture it correctly once yeah so um, anyway a long-winded story but that's i that's love that the, some of the thoughts before behind why i've gotten comfortable in that big landscape small athlete style well, and so you are also an athlete yourself, correct? I mean, you're also, you're not just photographing people, athletes, you, you actually partake in these activities. So tell us about, about that. Um, I mean, that, that's when I noticed that I should, there was a time in my life when I was deciding that I wanted to leave the corporate world. What was I going to do? And my original thought was of becoming a backcountry ski guide or a certified um, American mountain guide or international mountain guide. And so that was on my list. And at the time I was a uh, search and rescue volunteer for backcountry skiing. And so we get called out. My thought was having not really started skiing until I was 27. Um, and then very quickly getting into backcountry skiing and big mountain skiing. It was kind of like, if I'm going to play out here. I need all of the tools, all of the skill set <laughs> for AVI rescue, for, you know, identification, for mountain travel and staying safe overnight and then rescuing others. And so I went and got that certification. And um, what I started noticing was that I was sacrificing my own athletic pursuits to get a better photo. So rather than having that, you know, that dream ski line of three or 4,000 feet, I would break it up and get various photos along the way. And oftentimes my ski was not all that interesting, but I'd be so happy because I'd come away with photos that other people weren't getting because they weren't also the athlete that could get into location to get those photos. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then, so when I started sacrificing summits and sacrificing my own fun um, out there, I was like, okay, I think that's something I could do day in and day out and not get tired of it. And the more I got into photography, the more I was like, oh, I know nothing. <laughs> There's so much <laughs> to learn. There's a life, lifelong lesson to try and perfect this craft. But the the athletics is funny because I wasn't a great athlete in, in um, high school growing up. I wasn't a great athlete in college. I was music, percussion, drums focused. And the, the long endurance athletic stuff started here when I did an MS uh, from Spirit Mountain to the Twin mm. Cities, that MS-150 yeah. ride. Uh, Wait, that was your two. first, that was your first <laughs> like thing was a 150 mile bike ride? What? Like I said, right, we, yeah. we make mistakes. <laughs> that does not sound like fun. This podcast is called We Do This For Fun. And that does not sound like fun to me. These endurance races. I don't, I but still don't. They, they sound fun to me. And that was, that was <laughs> what I, I just, I don't know. I, I grab it. I realized that team sports, I don't excel at team sports. But like the solo long-term endurance thing, I, I really enjoy those pursuits. Yeah. Mm. And so 
that started here in Minnesota. And then from there, it went into triathlons and, uh, and then all that funneled into, um, that year I turned 30, 2010, it was just kind of like, uh, my life in the mountain just blew up. And it's like, all of a sudden now I could rock climb. And now I started doing ultra marathons and long endurance biking. And, um, and I was documenting, I, I started gravitating documenting people's stories that were doing these long endurance stuff. And, and that was kind of fueled by people in the office around my same age doing the same thing. And they, this, this office was half an hour outside of Tahoe and kind of in no man's land in the desert. So you had to purposefully want to live there. Um, and you lived there because the access to Yosemite, to the Eastern Sierra into Tahoe, you know, we, we worked East coast hours. So we'd be done by one 30 or two. And then you drive down to Yosemite and, and buy a Tioga pass. Oh. Right. And then come home for dinner. So it's just, yeah. I was around oh. the people that wanted to do it, but I put myself in that position for a reason. And mm-hmm. I think that area called to me because it was um, less people than Colorado and some of the other spots. Hmm. Yeah. In this endurance sport space, you mentioned that you found it later is that what you're seeing generally? Like, I mean, we are hearing of all of these people who find these sports later in life, like weren't athletes when they were young, you know, whatever, but find these things later and then excel. Are you seeing this? I mean, and do you have any idea why this is happening? Sure. I have a few ideas. And um, so one of the catalysts for my photography career taking off was I uh, started photographing the Tahoe 200 when it, so one of the primary 200 mile races that exist now, cause I know there were a few before Tahoe, um, but they didn't take off. And so, so Tahoe started in 2014 and I was on board photographing that from the start. I remember I like photographed the start, went back to the office, had meetings, played a charity gig with the band I was in and then went back out and photographed runners until uh, I think I was there back on the trail, like 1am and all through the night. Um, And what I've learned really through those two hundreds and through trail running in general, and why trail running is going through a massive growth right now, road running is competitive. And this is my own personal opinion, kind of what Mm -hmm. I've seen. So I'm sure everybody has different opinions, but I think I think when we get in the road running headspace, it's you're never supposed to walk. You know, you're supposed to run the whole thing. And um, people are always worried about their PRs and how fast they do this 5K, how fast they do this marathon. And um, and these giant races where if you get injured, you're kind of on your own. Maybe somebody will stop, but for the most part, everybody's running their own race. In trail it's been very different. And especially in these long runs, like some of the ethos around trail running is you sacrifice your race. If you come across a run and it's hurt Mm. and, you know, think about that. Mm. Some of these trails, like you're 10, 15 miles away from a road. Mm. You, you guys might be five miles away from an aid station. You come across a runner, you stop and you help that person. So already on the base of the Mm -hmm. ethos, it's more community oriented. Um, Nobody truly cares how fast you finish a hundred miler. Nobody's like, oh, you finished a hundred miler. Like what, what time did you get? Yeah. They're just like, <laughs> congratulations, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, oh my God. Take it four yeah. days. 
whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even a 50 mile or a 50K. There's <laughs> totally. like, oh my God. Like, yeah. and, and when you go out for runs, it's, it's, uh, you're going out in places that are beautiful. You're not running on the road. Like, and you, if you want to stop for five minutes and take in the scenery, then you stop for five minutes and take in the scenery. Mm-hmm. And then you, another part of the ethos is that a lot of these races can function because they exist on the backs of volunteers. So it, some of these races come with trail requirements. Like in order to sign up for the race, you have to complete 10 hours of trail work. Um, cool. And then you try and also volunteer at an aid station for another event. So it's so much more community-based. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what people are missing and why they are getting, why this endurance stuff is happening. And then, and then because you're not focused on a 3.30 marathon to get into Boston, you're like, I don't care if I did, if I did it for five hours and I got to be outside for a little bit longer and have a good conversation with my buddy, I, uh, I'll do that. You know, like certainly people still go for Boston um, in the trail community, but I think there's much more of a focus on on um, deeper connection with the athletes you're out there with and the people mm. you're out there with. And so I think that has caught that. on. I love that people. so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a different way to I've approach with the sport. sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and I do, do parents know about this? I mean, for children, I mean, it just seems like a really great way to grow up. We're, we're going through tremendous growth in the trail side right now. You know, and with that, we've got to be mindful and protective of the trail systems too. Yeah. Um, so there's there's that piece of it, but yeah. I, I don't think so. There's so much. We're so competition based. I don't yeah, have kids, right. so this is total generalization. But from what I'm guessing in my childhood, is there's so much be better than the person yes, next to you. It and always is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's just I'm, yeah. Not I'm what the trail that. world is. Yeah, I mean, I'm finding that with even just looking at, you know, activities for our kids for the winter and there's, it's always like, there's always a race involved. There's always a, you know, it's like, can't we just go out on our skis and, you know, fart around and who cares who comes in first or last? Like we're just out there to enjoy the the space together. Well, and a lot of kids are getting priced out of sport too. You know, it's mm-hmm. not really accessible to kids. Like it used to, like there used to be, you know, rec sports and, mm-hmm. you know, social leagues and stuff like that. And that just doesn't seem to exist much anymore. It's all this pay to play stuff. And, um, you know, and the just what that does to families too, the expectation that you're in a gym for an entire week. I mean, then the parents mm-hmm. are losing out on the opportunity to get fresh air and be outside and move their bodies. And I mean, it's just a system that it sounds like what you're into could solve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think there's, there's a definite place for it. And that's when I mentioned earlier about you kind of get to pick your clients and where you're at. Like I've been around a few different sports and um, I just, I've just have continued to gravitate towards, um, the trail running genre and, and for a few different reasons, but the community is the biggest one for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and I was just thinking like my nephew just came up here for BMX races. He's nine and they had the, like some champions in Asante and I think it was 65 a race per day. So like on the weekend, it was 260 bucks just for the races yeah. alone. And I'm like, whoa that's Uh uh-huh and then you you add in the cost of the bike and you add in the cost of the all the gear and then the gas to get there travel yes really pricey really unbelievable yeah 
Um, We're going to start a revolution, you guys, right here, yeah, right now. Right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I have um, a question about uh, photography, and it's a personal question. It great. is, what am I supposed to do? How do I take a good picture? Like, I'm outside. What is a tip or two that could just help me get something that I don't even post on social media? Like, I just want it for myself. Yeah. You two tips for you. Okay. Give you perfect. Two tips. Perfect. Okay. We're going to go with one standard and that's rule of thirds. And I think you might be able to put an overlay even on your camera. So it puts it into a grid, just a tic-tac-toe grid on your camera. Think of that. So everything's divided vertically into thirds or horizontally into thirds. And if you're taking a picture of a person, don't put them in the middle of the photo, put them on one of the thirds. Um, and so <clears throat> the thought, like if you have that person, uh, let's say on the right third and they're looking across the photo, now the viewer's eyes are going to that person and then looking where that person's looking. If you put them in the center of the photo, I don't know if I'm looking left or right. And I don't, and, and that person in the middle of the photo is breaking up the story on left and right. So hmm. you can see it on your own when you, when you first look at a photo, exactly where does your eye first go? And then does your eye get drawn into the rest of the frame or not? Hmm. And so if you start thinking of it that way, so I'm going to take this photo of a river and rather than just putting the river right down the middle, I want the river to go from the top right corner to the lower left corner. And now I've got something meandering through the whole photo. So the person's going to stay on that photo a split second longer because they want to see that they want their eyes to go. You're going to have their eyes going through the whole photo because of where that river goes. And it's not splitting the photo into two. Mm. Um, and the rule of thirds is a very, very straightforward way. Just put that, put whatever subject, I guess I should say, know your subject. <laughs> <laughs> what is your intent in that photo? Who do you want? To, what do you want to highlight in that photo? And then put that in one of the thirds and play around, take, three photos in a row and put it on each third. If you want a little more moody photo, have that person that's on the edge of the photo look outside, look, look to the frame that's short. Instead of looking across the photo, look to the edge of the photo. So it's almost like they're not paying attention to what is in the rest of the photo and why are they not paying attention and engaged in the rest of the photo. Mm -hmm. So all that from like rule of thirds. That's your first tip, rule of thirds. <laughs> um, second tip, get closer. If you're not engaged in the photo, get closer to your subject. Bring your subject closer to the lens to really make it clear to your audience who matters, what matters in that photo. Hmm. I love yeah. that. All right. So those two. And then third, and, and a pet peeve of mine is, is what I learned. So in 2010, that, that year, that year I turned 30, like to basically turned my whole life. I went to my first ever photo clinic and it was six days in Jackson, Wyoming <clears throat> or Jackson hole. Um, and it was an insane deal. It was like 1600 bucks, six national, five national geographic photographers, an editor from national geographic and the photo editor from North face. And you spend every waking moment of the day with them for five days and the six days, kind of a social day. And you just go shoot every day, sun, sunrise, middle. And then at the end, 
after sunset, you review your images. And one of the things I learned from them is uh, it was a president of National Geographic at the time. He just said, you own your edges. So that your whole frame, your edges of your photo, if you've got this tree hanging in the top right corner that's not connected to anything else in the photo, you can move your camera, your 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 phone just a little bit so that tree is not in the photo at all. It doesn't, doesn't need to be there. It's not connected to anything else in the photo. It's just a random branch that you didn't remove because you you framed it. It doesn't have a, a place in the story of that photo. It's just bad framing. And so you own the edges of your, of your, of your frame. Mm -hmm. That one's a little more like pro level tip too. Like (laughs) advanced, advanced. Yeah. It's a little advanced for me. I'm still going to have branches in mine. I think. Yeah. Nail the rule of thirds first. And then that's your next level. Okay. Yeah. But it's funny. Like I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff. Uh, what 10 you know 10 years ago i was just on the front side of learning it and it's what i've really appreciated is um the ability to just keep learning mm-hmm. and, and things come over time right i love that oh yeah i feel like that is we could talk to you all day but i feel like this is a really <laughs> great place to maybe start to wrap up and thank you for being here and and i have a feeling that jody's wisdom what words of wisdom here at the end are going to have something to do with constant learning and lifelong learning (laughs) am i right sort of i actually like i mean yes because my idea was because when i was reading about scott i thought of this um interview that i heard this year and then i put this little post-it on my window that said don't miss your moment Mm. And I think, Scott, you like completely embody that. Like you yeah. were just like sharing like, oh, 10 years ago, I didn't know how to blah, blah, blah. And then I picked up this and then I did that. And I was a musician first. And I, you know, like, um, so whatever it is, right? Like, just take the risk and go for it. Whatever's calling you and whether you make, mis- you will make mistakes along the way. Right, Scott? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I wouldn't like. <laughs> I went over a cliff on a ski shoot and, and I'm sitting there the first time I was ever about to not lose money. And, and now I'm looking at ski photography as being my main channel, gotten published in a few big magazines and ski brands. And now I'm not going to be able to ski for the next four years because I just fell, uh, what, 50 feet and then 30 feet airborne and had a helicopter rescue coming. Oh my God. Like mistakes happen. And now I'm living in a van and rehabbing a leg <laughs> and I can't walk and I, you know, surgery to repair everything. And outside of that, like now for the rest of my life, I've got a knee that's just been completely destroyed, but you find a way, you find a way around it. There's, you know, you work with the wrong clients. Uh, you forget to bill clients. So you lose revenue. Like there's all kinds of mistakes you make along the way, but you just have to have to, um, you know, accept them that they don't define you and you learn from it and you move forward. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Don't miss your moment. Don't miss your moment. Like that you have that like intuitive internal, um, you know, alarm bells or notice, or just pay attention to what you're feeling Mm -hmm. and, and go for, like I said, it took me five years to act on a feeling I had, but Mm -hmm. the key point is I did. And, yeah. and, and, uh, 
and I didn't ignore it. And so, yeah, it's just when you pay attention to what you feel and like, and pursue it. And I, I think the thing that, and sorry for going a couple minutes long, but like the thing that I grew up with in Illinois was just tradition. You did the same thing year, year after year after year. We always go to this house for this holiday. We always do this. And it was like, you almost shut down the ability to feel by doing that. And so breaking myself out of some of the traditions, I mean, like, well, what do I want to do this year? If I'm not having to do this, what do I want to do? Yes. And then go do it and see what it mm -hmm. is. Maybe it's bad, but you experienced it. And now you know more for next time. So yeah, that. pay attention to those moments. Yeah. Yes. Well, Scott yeah. Rokas, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and all of your words of wisdom. We really appreciate it. And listeners go check him out. Amazing stuff. We'll put a link um, to his website on our website. So be sure to check out his work. So thank you guys very much. I, I appreciate right. it. And uh, this is making home feel more like home. So thank you. Aww. Great. Well, Scott, on your travels, don't forget to have fun out there. <laughs> No doubt that's going to happen. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye. Bye. We Do This For Fun is supported by 515 Productions, a high-end video production business based in Minneapolis. The website is 515productions.com. And did you know that Jody is also a health and wellness coach? Check out her website at jodygruen.com. If you like this podcast, we love your support. Please rate and review us and hit subscribe. Learn more about us at wedothisforfun.com. As always, we welcome your questions and feedback. Email us at wedothisforfun at gmail.com. We'll be dedicating future episodes to answering your questions. So let her rip, whether it's about gear purchases or tampons and IBS in the wilderness. We do not judge. We promise we've been there, done that. Nothing is off the table. And thanks for listening.